Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 574 with Vikram Masharamani. We are talking decisions and how to make them optimally and wisely to survive the overwhelm of data and choices so that you are coming out with some good, clear decisions that make a great impact for you and your career and your organization, your team, and the good that you're doing for people. So much fun. So you'll learn, one, the danger of deferring to experts in technology, two, critical steps for smarter decision-making, and three, how to better predict the future with prospective hindsight. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, do either tap, expand the episode notes, show description in your podcast app player. But if you're not liking what you see so much there, maybe the links aren't clickable. That happens on some apps, unfortunately. Visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP as an EP, short for episode, 574. Now, his Vikram story, Vikram Mansharamani is a lecturer at Harvard University and the author of Boom Bustology, Spotting Financial Bubbles Before They Burst, and his latest, Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Experts and Artificial Intelligence. He's a frequent commentator on issues driving disruption in the global business environment, and his ideas and writings have appeared in Fortune, Forbes, The New York Times, Worth, and many other publications. LinkedIn listed him as the number one top voice for money, finance, and economics in 2015 and 2016, and Worth Magazine profiled him as one of the 100 most powerful people in global finance in 2017. In addition to teaching and writing, Mantramani also advises several Fortune 500 CEOs on how to navigate uncertainty in today's dynamic global business and regulatory environment. He holds a PhD and two master's degrees from MIT, as well as a bachelor's degree from Yale, where he was elected to Phi Beta Kappa. Big thanks to Vikram for spending some time with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. And big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients tier one compensation provided compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorn securities llc member at finra sipc for more information visit acorns.com Vikram, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks for uh, having me, Pete. Well, I'm so excited to dig into, into your good stuff. We're talking decision-making, and I understand you've done a lot of decision-making in a place many people say there's no hope for good decisions, and that's Las Vegas. <laughs> you've been there more than 50 times. What's the story? Yeah, that's a fascinating place to start here, Pete. I mean, Vegas is one of my real soft spots in life. I love everything about that city. I love the gaming. I love the restaurants. I love the pools. 
love the hotels. I love the shows. I love the spas. The whole experience is just fabulous. The story as to why I went there so frequently is it was actually uh, the topic of my dissertation. So I studied the gaming industry for my doctoral work at MIT. And I did that for, for various reasons, but the biggest reason was I was about to quit the PhD program at MIT that I was enrolled, and one of my professors, uh, an advisor who I really trusted, who had become a mentor, said, Vikram, that's a really bad idea. You should get this done. What are you excited about? What do you enjoy? What wouldn't feel like work to you? And I think I had just gotten back from a uh, trip to Las Vegas, perhaps with some college buddies, and... I said, you know what's really fun? Las Vegas. I love Las Vegas. And he said, why don't you study the gaming industry? And then there you go. So it was research that took me to Vegas many of those times, but not all. Cool. Well, so I'm curious, in your gaming, are you up? Are you down? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm down. Um, but but uh, I think most people that do any amount of gaming end up down. But for me, it's a cost of entertainment. Look, there's different ways to spend money to be entertained. And if I can do it socially sitting at a craps table with a bunch of friends and folks that I know and have a nice time and people give you some adult beverages while you're there, it's sort of the cost of entertainment. Okay, understood. Well, now I want to dig into your wisdom and your, get this, your latest is called Think for Yourself. Well, I want to hear what's one of the most fascinating and surprising discoveries you've made about us humans and, and how we go about decision making? Well, there's a lot of surprises there, but the, the fundamental truth is, I think, we tend not to be rational in this strict model optimizing sense that some traditional economists think we are. And what does that mean? Uh, that means that we sometimes make decisions, as I'm sure you're aware, through behavioral finance and behavioral economics thinking, based on emotions or fairness or some of these things that might not make sense from a strict economic perspective. So I think, you know, just the, the sort of seeming irrationality of the human being in decision-making context is in and of itself kind of surprising, where people do things that might not be in their obvious self-interest. And so, yeah, I think that's probably one of them. All right. Well, I'm so intrigued by your your title there, Think for Yourself, because I think a lot of people would say, hey, I think for myself, Vikram. Come on, buddy. So what are, what, how are when we're not thinking for ourselves, what are we doing? Well, let me use a couple of examples. I think this will actually make it tangible, real, and I think the audience will appreciate this. Let's say you get up in the morning, you're getting into your car, you're heading to a destination east of your current location. It happened to have snowed last night, the schools are closed, but since you're not 100% sure where you're heading, you put it into your GPS device or your nav system in your car. Now, the algorithm turns around and tells you uh-oh, you're going east to this location, but there's an elementary school and it's currently 8.30 in the morning. Yeah, we're going to send you north to go around and then come down to the east. Now you pause and you think to yourself, huh, it's probably because of the school there, but the reason it's suggesting to go around the school is because of the traffic at this time of the morning. You've done this before. You know that your system does that. You also know that a school the school is closed because of the bad weather or the snow day. Do you follow the device or not? There's a simple question. I'm going to give you one other example, which may feel like it's higher stakes. You go to your cardiologist. Your cardiologist tells you, you know what, Pete? I'm sensing a little bit of cholesterol levels creeping up on you here. 
she happens to be younger than you. And she says, you know what? I had the same problem. I'm starting to take this statin. I think you should take this statin. By the way, every other cardiologist here in the hospital complex, they're taking a statin. My medical school peers, they're all taking statins. And I think you should take a statin. Do you push back or do you take the statin? And so these are examples where we may not realize it, but we're not thinking for ourselves. We're outsourcing our thinking to experts and technologies. And that may not always be bad, but it's something I think we should do mindfully rather than passively and sort of as a default setting. You know, well, it's funny. We're talking about health issues. And and as we speak, I am engaged in the daunting process of shopping for health insurance since my my wife is shifting to full-time mothering. And I am... (laughs) shifting uh, onto adopting a, a tremendous financial burden in the United States. Wow. Sure. <laughs> so but you're right. It's like experts say stuff and it's just like, well, geez, I don't know. This seems like there's a lot of complexity and it's intricate and hard to get to the bottom and, and become uh, super knowledgeable about all my options. And well, hey, if this is gold and it's Blue Cross and it's a PPO and it Y'all say it's good. I guess that's what I'm going to get. <laughs> well, well, think about that. I and mean, what you're getting at, which is actually how I start off most of my book here, is we are facing an environment of overwhelming data. And with overwhelming data comes overwhelming choice. All of us have become conditioned to believe that more choice is better that more choice lets us find the exact, optimal, perfect combination of features that is what we need. And the reality is we get overwhelmed by that choice. We are sort of given this elusive ideal of perfection, and it's never really achievable, leaving us with this low-grade fever of something we call FOMO. We're missing out on that perfect choice. There should be a perfect choice. And so what do we do? We run headlong into the arms of experts and technologies that promise us salvation from this anxiety of being overwhelmed by choice. Okay, yeah, Uh, that that sounds like a fair synopsis of where we are right now. I buy it. (laughs) Well, even just think about your medical insurance dilemma, right? I'm sure there's an online choice aid that exists that says, well, you know, how many, uh, how many dependents do you have? Uh, do you think you want high deductible or low deductible? Do you like your doctor? Do you want to be in network? Do you need referrals? Do you not want referrals? Do you just want to be able to go anywhere in network? All of these things create these permutations and combinations which overwhelm us. In fact, you wouldn't be human if you weren't overwhelmed, which is why we then go to people who promise us the hope. And in the process, we actually stop thinking for ourselves. Okay. Well, so in in a way, you know, that's a bit of a pejorative context or or phrase in terms of, hey, you're not thinking for yourself. That seems like something, at least the way I interpret it, the emotional valence I'm sticking on it, is that to think for oneself is is a good and noble, worthy thing. And to not think for oneself is something that that foolish sheep do and and they need to step up. Well, it's a little, I'm going to get a little meta on you here. Thinking for yourself, you may in fact think for yourself while outsourcing your thinking. But if you do it proactively, mindfully, then it's okay. Then you are in fact thinking for yourself when you're letting someone else think for you. If you proactively make that choice, it's the default condition without thinking about how you're making your choices that I have issues with. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't rely on experts or technologies. 
In fact, I'm suggesting the opposite. We should rely on experts and technologies, but we should do so mindfully. We should keep them in their role where we are the lead actor. They can be supporting actors. And so that's really the objective. Well, so you gave us a couple examples which, which make it real with regard to, you know, the GPS and, and the doctors. And so where are some danger zones, specifically for professionals and, you know, career people, that it's like, hey, hey, time out. You may not be thinking for yourself about these sorts of things, and you could be falling for these kinds of traps. You know, warning, take a beat and think about this. Sure. Well, one area I think for career-oriented folks who are thinking about doing well in their jobs, climbing the corporate ladder, et cetera, advancing, is that we've developed this core belief system, I think, that expertise, core competence, unique skills, if you will, put capitals on all of those words, are the ultimate destination and the keys to rising in one's career, advancing, as well as increasing your income. And I want to suggest for a moment that actually breadth of perspective may be equal, if not more important, than depth of expertise. And part of this has to do with the siloization that's occurred of knowledge and how people make decisions. We tend to think of the world as broken down in domains. There's a heart doctor, cardiologist. Okay, I got to go see someone different for a different part of my body. But the system is a whole. And so what I'm suggesting is rather than hang our hat on developing unique skills and depth of knowledge, I want to suggest that you can actually benefit from being broad, being an integrator of disparate ideas, being a generalist, if you will. Oh, sure thing. Well, we had uh, David Epstein on the show, and that was one of his key messages there. He's a good friend. So I, I think I buy it. So that- how do you suppose we fall for the default assumption that specialization is where it's at? Well, it has to do with the overwhelming amount of data, information, and complexity in our world or, or how complicated it's become. And so the way most organizations deal with this is they silo people into doing working on parts of a problem. That's how we try to do this. And so as a result, we outsource our career trajectories often to the organizations within which we work. And a little pushback on that would be healthy. And what it also means is reconceiving the concept of a career trajectory away from rising through a corporate ladder, perhaps thinking about it differently. Maybe it's a corporate jungle gym and the best way to get to the top is not by going up on every step, but by going laterally down to the left, to the right, down three steps, over, up. There may be a different way to get to the top. Now, what does that practically mean? I mean, it's a fun analogy to talk about a corporate jungle gym, but it may mean, all right, if you're rising through the finance function of an organization, maybe it makes sense to stop and do a tour of duty in the marketing department possibly take a demotion rather than a promotion and go into operations, go run a factory, possibly come back and go involved with technologies or call centers or what have you. Develop a portfolio of skills through multifunctional, multi-geographic experiences that could possibly have you leapfrog the trajectories of those who stay within a silo. I guess that's really what I'm getting at. 
Well, I'll tell you in terms of a, a universal skill, which is what we're all about here, that is is handy across each of these, you know, functional and industry domains is is just this, some of that decision making, you know, smart uh, thinking for yourself skills. So I'd love to get your, your take then on, on some of, of the top do's and don'ts in terms of, okay, if I, if I have decided that I'm going to go about making some decisions and I'm, I'm going to have the, the experts on tap, not on top, one of your turns of phrase, which I had liked, um, I'm going to receive input from them, but I'm not going to let them just, you know, blindly call the shots. How do you recommend we go out, you know, doing research, uh, generating options, selecting the, the best option for us? Sure. Well, one of the things that I think is absolutely critical, Pete, is people should spend more time paying attention to the context. Far too often we focus on what's in front of us and where we've shown the spotlight uh, and not on the related contextual developments that may impact even our decision choices, even the possible selections we can make. So I think paying attention to the context matters. Now, again, that sounds very abstract. Let's make it real. Let's say you're in the world of retailing. Do you pay attention to U.S.-China relations? Maybe. It seems kind of like general knowledge is it going to impact me? Is it not going to impact me? I don't know. I'm doing, I'm in a retail sector. I'm local. If you're paying attention to political developments, obviously we know there's an election here in the United States, but do we know what's happening in the political dynamics of our largest trading partners or what have you? Maybe that's going to potentially come home to impact us. So advice piece number one is pay attention to context. Number two, I always encourage people making tough decisions to make sure you get some disagreement in the advice you get. Don't get don't don't go out and seek the same advice that you know is confirming your already pre-existing inclinations. Seek disagreement. That's something that too far too few people do this. Well, you know, it's it's a great it's a great perspective, but boy, it's a frustrating one. I'm, I'm thinking back to I had to get a new roof, uh, you know, for for my home. And uh, I don't know about roofing, <laughs> but uh, I, I had a heck of a hard time just getting anyone to show up and do something, it seems, uh, in, term, in the world of home renovation. So I thought, well, I better just call uh, 20 roofers so that I can get, you know, uh, three quotes. But I got like nine <laughs> to actually show up and weigh in on the matter. And, and then it was... Oh boy, it was it was complex and overwhelming because it's sort of like okay, well, this guy costs twice as much as that guy, but why is he doing more? Is it better? Is it higher quality? This person says I absolutely have to have it, it torn off and redone, and that one says no, 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 you don't need to do that. You can just put another layer. This one says you don't even need a layer. I can just get a ceiling and a coating, and and, and so why am I the person who does not know about roofing, charged with the task of determining who is correct and who is is incorrect i found myself some disagreement and i i mean it was uh it was tough to sort to the bottom of it well let me ask you this do you feel you were more informed about roofing now that you did that i'm vastly informed about roofing and uh, i wish i weren't but i am <laughs> far more than you want to be exactly <laughs> well so then the question becomes do you think you could make a better decision having had those conversations or not you mean you mean going forward or, or looking back or both? Yeah. If it, so ultimately, did, before you replaced your roof, you 
presumably had to make a choice. And you, I think, made an informed choice. It might have had some cost with developing the options and seeking the disagreement and getting a lay of the land. But that mere process, I think, informed you on an area that you would have otherwise made a decision blindly in. Well, you know, it it did inform me. I suppose, I mean, what I'm really getting at is once I've gotten some disagreement, how do I make a call? Sure. Sure. Well, that's ultimately where you need to think for yourself, right? What are the variables that matter to you? Do you want a 40-year life roof or do you care if it's a 20-year life roof? Do you want to have the guarantee in case there's a leak and a hurricane comes through or do you not worry about the guarantee because you think you may sell the house next year? So I think there's some uh, some trade-offs that one needs to think about themselves. But you know, part of the reason I encouraged a disagreement is there's a quote, a very famous quote that Alfred Sloan used that says, uh, quote, if we are all in agreement on this decision, then I propose we postpone further discussion of this matter until our next meeting to give ourselves time to develop disagreement and perhaps gain some understanding of what the decision is all about. Disagreement helps understand. So that's part of the reason I, I focus on generating a little bit of disagreement. Well, no, that, that's certainly true. That, that helps it generates understanding, you know, and, and partially just because of psychologically, internally, there's this this tension. It's like, well, well what's right? I, I, ah, you know, because I'm sort of frustrated. I really uh, I want to hunker down and do, get in, deep into the wisdom because because there's this tension I want resolved. To say what's what's correct. So what are your some of your pro tips in terms of? I, I guess you know, one, you're getting really clear to what you want in your own criteria and rubrics there. But but I guess part of what I figured out was. I had to sort of make some rules of thumb for who am I going to believe and who am I not and why. And and a part of it was I am more inclined to believe people who tell me something that works against their self-interest. Like, hey, I can't do anything for you right now because you got to take care of that masonry first. It was like, so you're just going to walk away from the money I want to give you. I'm I'm inclined to think that that's a, a true thing he said about the, the masonry because it goes against his self-interest. Or if, if someone gives me a why, a, a reason, <laughs> a because underneath what they're saying, then I, I would buy it more than the guy who did not. Like, you're going to have to tear off this roof because you can tell from this thickness right here that there's already three layers which is already more than the building code allows for. And if you observe this, you'll see some sagging in the rafters versus the guy who's like, nah, we could just put another layer on it. It's like, you didn't tell me why we could put another layer on it. You didn't say, hey, I, I, I can tell from this thickness that we have. You know, he just said, nah. <laughs> you know, so, so if you give me a reason versus not a reason, I want to go with the person who gave me a reason. So yeah, those are just a couple of the rubrics I ended up inventing on the spot uh, to make sense of my roof. But what else would you, would you point us to in terms of sorting things out? Yeah, I mean, look, ultimately, we need to think about just satisficing, if you will. We've so often, because of these overwhelming sets of options and the overwhelming data deluge that we're suffering, we think there's an ideal. So we never settle on, quote, good enough. And we, I mean, I can imagine, I I don't know you that well, but, you know, you might have been a person who got so analytical, you could imagine a spreadsheet on which roofing contractor to hire. Oh, there's absolutely multiples. (laughs) 
<laughs> right? At some point, we just need to decide. You can overanalyze these things. And so when I tell people to focus on decision-making, I say, look, you can satisfy, that's from Herb Simon, Nobel Prize winner, who suggested that actually maximization logic or optimization logic sometimes can mislead us, just the pursuit of it even, you know, into expending more cost on trying to optimize, then we get value from the incremental optimization. Oh, agreed. The time, I mean. So I'll give you an example from the book, which is, uh, which is a fun personal example. And it has to do with selecting a movie to watch. You know, every now and then when the kids are asleep, my wife and I will jump on the couch and try to get a movie and just watch a movie in the comfort of our home. You know, more so these days since we don't go out <laughs> uh, during this lockdown. But inevitably what happens is one of us gets to the couch first and sees a preview or two. And then the second one arrives and says, I got to be on the same informational footing. I got to see the same previews you watch. There's no way I'm making a choice without you let, you know, you have an informational edge here. I need to get involved here. And so we'll watch a couple. Both of us are in different moods, possibly realizing that my goodness, Xfinity has 10,000 movies available. We got the Apple TV, which has another 50,000. We got Netflix, which can give it to us all of those 100,000 movies in seven different languages. And we got to be able to find the perfect movie. And so an example I use in the book is my wife eventually is like, fine, you sounds like you really want to watch that. Let's just watch that movie. Except it's taken us an hour to choose the movie. I fall asleep halfway through the movie, go to sleep, and she turns around and says, I chose this movie because you wanted to watch this movie. She's upset. I fell asleep. I go to sleep. She then wakes up next morning. I hear she watched half of a movie she didn't want to watch and half of a movie she did want to watch and is frustrated by the whole evening. That's what happens with too much choice and not satisficing. And we're all subject to it. Sometimes it's fine to just make a choice. There'll be more choices in the future. No reason to stress out about things. <laughs> Something shouldn't be stressed about. Well, yeah, and that's really interesting. It's so funny that... Um... <laughs> You, know, we, you and I are having this conversation. My company is called Optimality LLC. Uh, that is my business name. I love things being optimal. And it's, um, uh, and I, I think I'm the weird one, you know, compared to my friends and, and family in terms of others are, are, are more fine with satisficing. But I think that's really a, a great point in terms of, of, again, thinking for yourself in terms of, what are, we, what are we looking to do here? Do we need to optimize the crap out of this? And some things you really do. It's like, this will make a tremendous impact if it's 2% better. So we're going to get there. And other things, it's just, it, it doesn't. In terms of, if you found the best possible movie ever that was from thenceforth, you, all of your favorite movies, one that's highly improbable <laughs> that will ever occur, because how can you top Life is Beautiful? Mm, wow, what a film. But the, the payoff isn't, isn't that extraordinarily huge, and the quest could take forever. So I think that's a really great point right there. It's just to decide, what, what do we got to do here? We got to get a perfect optimization, a rough optimization, or just a quick good enough? Yeah, and I think it has to do, obviously, with the stakes. Uh, you know, when the stakes are low, our default is we, we tend not in our decision processes to factor in the stakes of the outcome. I mean, this is a trivial thing. We're watching a movie why stress about optimizing? Just go with one. It's good. We'll have another choice next week or the week. And we'll have lots of, this is a repeated choice and the stakes are so low. So yeah, I think incorporating how big a decision and how high the stakes are uh, should come into that decision of optimize versus satisfice. 
Certainly. Well, and it's so funny as, as you talked about it. It's like, well, boy, if you really want to optimize the, the bejesus out of movie selection, you just got to go to IMDb or Metacritic or Rotten Tomatoes, go top to bottom. <laughs> I mean, Pete, you're hinting at a great point where we outsource our thinking. How many of us go to the recommended people who watch this movie will also enjoy this movie? And don't we just naturally go there and explore those? When you purchase a book online from your favorite large retailer, do you go down and say, well, people who bought this also bought this, may also enjoy this? Or do you get an email from someone? Are they channeling our focus in a way that prevents us from scanning? And so we end up becoming exploiters, i.e. narrow and deep, rather than explorers, wide and broad. So I think we're outsourcing some of our thinking, even unknowingly in times like those. Yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting if you think about this, that notion of exploiting versus exploring, you would probably have a very different approach and mindset toward exploring if if it wasn't, you know, in the heat of battle, if you will. Like, we've got to pick a movie to watch now versus, why don't I just get a, a list of candidates ready for the future moment in which we're going to watch a movie? You'll probably be a little bit more open-ended in terms of, oh, what's that about? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think actually some of these large tech companies giving us media have thought about this decision problem. And that's why I think, I don't know for a fact, but I think that's why we have the wish list or the my list, or I think every streaming service has their own one where you put down what your future potential movies to watch are. So even there, I think they're trying to overcome that problem. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, Vikram, tell me before we shift gears, any other top, you know, do's and don'ts for wise thinking, decision-making we should lock in? Yeah. So one of the things that I think is critical that very few people spend enough time thinking about is the future. Of course, all of us think about the future, singular, but I think we need to think about futures, plural. And thinking about multiple futures is a different way to think. It's thinking probabilistically of how things can transpire. And so that's a big picture topic, but I think it has to do with the context. As I said earlier, the context is critical to how you make decisions, the environment in which you're making the decisions, the stakes of the decision you're making. But also related to that is some version or vision of the future. And I, I'd rather you not have one vision of the future or one version of the future, but rather multiple futures that you're envisioning or uh, foreseeing. So like with the roof, I, I might sort of imagine what's the future, which I'm delighted with. What's the future that I'm furious about? How do these come about? Yeah. I mean, look, one of the decision tactics I use in some of my advisory work is I use, uh, from the academic literature, something called prospective hindsight. Now, what does that mean in plain English? In plain English, that means it's called a pre-mortem analysis. What does that mean in real plain English? <laughs> Imagine failure in the future for a decision you made today, and then paint a story of why that decision failed. So you decided to go with one roofer. A hurricane came through, and you know what? You shouldn't have done the multiple layers because it ripped off. That's horrible. One possibility of failure in that decision is you went with a choice that optimized for the short term, not thinking about some of these bigger risks. Alternatively, you failed because you went with the high-priced guy who was going to do it perfectly, strip the roof, rebuild the masonry, do it all, and charge an arm and a leg. 
Well, now, how does that fail? Yeah, the failure there may be that, well, I spent too much money. It never really got the value of it or what have you. Or, you know, there's other versions that you can think about. And so you can think in terms of possible regrets for decisions made, trying to project yourself into the future and looking back to say, why did that decision go wrong? And that oftentimes helps spur some interesting thinking. All right. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote? You gave us one. Do you have another? I do. Peter Drucker, fabulous management theorist. And it's related, again, in the domain of decisions. I think this is a fabulous one. He says, a decision without an alternative is a desperate gambler's throw. I figured I'd bring that in given the Vegas connection too. But yes, the key is it's not a choice. It's not a decision if you only have one alternative you've come up with. And this has to do with also that disagreement logic. So that's, that's a fun quote. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? You know, there's a lot of them out there that I find fascinating. Obviously, Kahneman and Thaler, Kahneman and Tversky have done a lot, but Thaler's done a lot in behavioral decision-making. And I find almost all of their work fascinating. Some of their earlier work where they decided to actually go and try these sort of studies on people one of my favorite ones, it's, very, it's referenced very slightly, but I think it's, it says so much about us humans, was when they stepped in front of an audience and spun one of those wheels of fortune that resulted in a number, I think between a zero and a hundred. And then they asked the audience what percentage of African nations were members of the United Nations. And they got a number. You know, they did this many times. Other groups spun the wheel of fortune. It was a random number. Everyone saw it was a random number. And then they asked the question, what percentage of African nations are members of the United Nations? And the numbers that the groups came up with for percentage of African nations that were members of the United Nations were influenced by the random number. And the anchoring effect, so visceral at that point. Like, wait, this we know this number's random, and yet that's in our head. We can't get it out of our head, and we approach the answer to the question closer to that than we otherwise should. Uh, I find that fascinating. Well, yeah, you know, I saw one where judges <laughs> did a study with judges who had a, an address on the stationery of the document that influenced how much of a monetary award they thought uh, a plaintiff deserved, which was wild because these are judges. You'd think it wouldn't be that way, but unfortunately it is. You know, the other study that I'll just highlight, Philip Tetlock wrote a book called Expert Political Judgment. And in that book, he talks about experts forecasting and the long range forecasts of many experts. And what he found was experts were less accurate in their area of expertise the non-experts were vis-a-vis the predictions made over a long term and with lots of predictions. And I think he had 80,000 predictions over lots of years and lots of forecasters and sort of came back to the logic that sometimes it's better to be broad rather than narrow. And how about a favorite book? You know, one of the books that I really do love is The Four Agreements, which is a, a bit of philosophy. It's a book that's not quite spiritual in a sense, but it's a sort of, it's a Toltec wisdom guide to self-freedom or something like that. I forget the subtitle of it. But really, it's a book that forces you to step back and put things in context, uh, personally, professionally, etc. I find it a, a really empowering book. It's a book that I sometimes leave in my suitcase back when I was traveling more and uh, would happily pick up and read through uh, and reread. Uh, it's a book that I think is quite powerful. And how about a favorite tool, something that helps you be awesome at your job? I actually think sometimes just disconnecting 
from the stuff I'm working on. And if that's go out for a run or, and I, and I talk about this also as a tool to, to inspire creativity, literally just get lost in a movie uh, in the middle of the day. So sometimes if I'm writing and in a rut, I will go turn on a movie uh, in the middle of the day, watch it, watch half of it. Of course, obviously, I don't think this is an unusual advice, but working out and sort of breaking the rhythm. But uh, those are some of the tools I use to really break up the rhythm. And is there a particular nugget you share that you're really known for? It's quoted back to you often? I think the the phrase that you've already quoted that I do like to use and a lot of people associate with me is, you know, sometimes keep experts on tap, not on top. That's one of the things. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? You know, I think my website's probably the best place, which is just my last name.com, www.manshuramani.com or my Twitter uh, account, which is at Manshuramani. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? You know, I think it's really, really important to try to take a step back and think about these multiple futures. And I know lots of people that are professional and focused on their careers are devout readers of nonfiction. But I want you to take some time to read fiction, to watch movies. I think the creativity that it inspires helps you think about multiple futures You know, I teach this class at Harvard called Humanity and Its Challenges. It's a systems thinking class taught at the engineering school. And I use novels in this class. Now, this throws engineering students off because their first inclination is, wait, what? That's not real, though, Vikram. (laughs) That's not real. That's, That's fake. That's a fiction story. And I was like, yes read it. (laughs) You'll understand. We're watching movies. They're like, but that's not real. We'll watch a documentary, not a movie. But the point is some of these narratives of future scenarios can really help you navigate through uncertainty as it comes. It helps you get a lay of the land of what may be in front of you. Five years ago, when I started teaching this class during the year 2016-17 academic year, one of the cases, and we've used it since then, is the risk of a global pandemic. We had students watch the movie Contagion. We had the students watch other movies for other cases. And they dismissed it back then as Hollywood-esque drama. This isn't real. This is fake. Today, a handful of those students that gave me that feedback back then are turning around and saying, wow, I'm glad you made us watch some of those things. Gave us a version of how the future could unfold that even though we didn't fully appreciate at the time, we now do. So that's a little tidbit. Sort of think in terms of futures. Beautiful. Well, Vikram, this has been a treat. Thank you. I wish you all the best of luck in the ways you're, you're thinking for yourself. Great. Thanks very much, Pete. I think my favorite part of this conversation with Vikram that really has stuck with me and popped into head again and again is that quote from Alfred Sloan. If we're all in agreement on this decision, then I propose we postpone further discussion of this matter until our next meeting to give ourselves time to develop disagreement and perhaps gain some understanding of what the decision is all about. Whew, what a potent reframe. Because often when I encounter disagreement, I'm sort of annoyed, like, ugh. And maybe you find that in your team environments, too. It's sort of like, okay, hey, you know what? Seven, eight, nine out of ten of us want to do this, but we got one, two, three holdouts who are just sort of slowing it all down. How annoying. (laughs) You know, but instead, like, oh, no, no, no. That disagreement is empowering or a source of power in terms of gaining better understanding And a famed business mind like Alfred Sloan said, yeah, that's something that we should seek out. And if you don't have it, wait until you get it so that you understand what's really going on. So very helpful for me, taking out some of the frustration of disagreement and as I embrace it as more of an asset. So 
Cool. Thanks for that, Vikram. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F574. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. It's Marsha Reynolds. We had her way back in episode 14, and she made me cry in a good way with a powerful story. And she's bringing some more potent insight about how to engage in effective coaching conversations. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.